Welcome to the MFA Made for Agriculture podcast. Here are your hosts, Adam Jones and Cameron Horine. Well, hey everyone, it's Adam. Welcome to another episode of the Made for Agriculture podcast. Today is going to be a continuation of our conversation that we released in the last episode with Landry Jones, Conservation Grazing Specialist for MFA Incorporated, and David Moore, our Range and Pasture Specialist with MFA Incorporated. Now, Cameron and I had an awesome conversation with both of these guys, and we definitely didn't want to let anything fall through the cracks, if you will. So we decided to split this episode up into two pieces. If you did not listen to that first episode, I'd encourage you to jump back on the feed and scroll back to the last episode and listen to some of the information that David was providing about pasture weed control and uh, weed control and management on, on hay production acres or forage acres. In this episode, uh, the conversation kind of pivots a little bit into more um, kind of a holistic grazing approach and, and how we can move stock around the farm and just better utilize uh, the resources that the forage can provide. And so Landry goes into some great detail on rotational grazing and some great information that you just don't want to miss. So I encourage you to uh, tune in all the way to the end of this episode. While I've got you today, I also have a couple favors to ask from everyone who's tuning in. Uh, the first of which would be to share, please share these episodes. If you know growers or landowners, folks around agriculture in the Midwest that would enjoy some of this content, um, we really get some great minds in the room to, to record some good conversations and would definitely encourage you to share those uh, around as, as much as you possibly would. And I know there's lots of folks out there um, who can get a lot of information out of it. So we definitely appreciate you doing that. The next thing you could do for us uh, would be give us a rating on iTunes. It, obviously, we, we would like for you to give us five stars, but just give us a rating and some comments there on iTunes, and that would help folks be able to find the podcast when they search it. And, uh, and also, if you ever have topics that you'd like for us to hear about or suggested guests for the podcast, those are always great. You could always send those to podcast at mfa-inc.com. Now, with all that being done, let's jump back into the conversation with David, Landry, and Cameron. One of the other weeds that we didn't even talk about that I thought I'd just bring up real quick, because you just drive down the road and you can see it um, within pastures everywhere and hay ground too. Um, and it's not it's not a herbicide issue that maybe we should at least talk about because you know you may have somebody spray and then they're like well i haven't got rid of this is broom sedge mm -hmm. so let's just briefly talk about how do we control broom sedge and how do we kind of you know how much is that affecting our pastures and hay ground and what's the best control option for that well broom sedge becomes more of a is there because more of a management issue than than anything and uh you know, this is probably a great segue into, into just management issues. Um, granddad always said, if you've got broom sedge, you need to put some lime on. And in reality, broom sedge really comes when phosphorus gets low, is when we really see it explode. Because broom sedge can thrive in an almost zero phosphorus environment and our grasses cannot. So if we're under fertilizing with phosphorus, your grasses are, are getting put on the back shelf quite a bit and broom sedge has an opportunity to come and it'll outcompete the grasses in and that's when we see huge quantities of, of broom sedge take off. So why does putting lime on help? If I fix the pH that just makes fertilizer more available to the plant. 
So if it needs lime, we put lime on. If it doesn't need lime, putting lime on is not going to help. Uh, but fixing low phosphorus and low potassium levels is, is huge. Then it becomes a management issue of let that grass outcompete the broom sedge. And I like to go in there, you know, that broom sedge is growing right now. I've, I've seen it out in some of the pastures. I see it uh, in some of the hay fields that have been cut already. Uh, let it come up. Don't let it go to seed. You know, keep it clipped. Keep it grazed down, whatever it takes. Just don't let it go to seed. You know, create an environment where it's at a distinct disadvantage to your grass. And, and eventually you'll see it go away. One of the other things we do, I'll frequently tell people, just put 200 pounds of DAP per acre. I wouldn't want to do that this year. Phosphorus mm. is really expensive. Right. But uh, on years mm. when, when phosphorus gets, uh, gets to be a little cheaper than it is this year, 200 pounds of DAP puts 92 units of phosphorus. And in one year's time, you can see huge changes in how much, how much broom sedge you have. It's, but management is huge. You know? yeah. Management right. is huge. And I mean, just, just speaking of that management piece, just for this whole weed, you know, pasture weed management talk, I mean, just by having your fertility levels right, you're, it's going to give the advantage to the grass, you know, come that early March when the grass is starting to wake up, um, it's going to give it that early advantage to be able to take off and kind of help with some of the weed control problems already because, I mean, you know, you're giving it the advantage. So. Well, I think, <clears throat> excuse me, I think you're right. I mean, a lot of our a lot of our weed issues, our, our problem species that we see in our pastures, a lot of it can be fixed just for management. You know, we're either overgrazing, we're cutting the hay too short, we're not doing right fertility. You know, whatever it might be, that it's, it's usually the, unfortunately, it's usually the producer's fault due to management that's caused some of those issues with those weeds. So I think we can fix them with herbicides, and that's a great option. But we we got to kind of figure out the root cause of the problem otherwise we're going to be right back there or, spraying yeah it. they're going to be right back in that same yep. situation year year in and yep. year out and then and that also goes to you know uh we talked about it earlier but i, I see people out bush hogging their pastures in the fall mm -hmm. and they haven't done any spraying you know essentially all those weeds are sitting there with seed on them yep. the broom sedge is bloomed i mean it's they're not doing themselves any favors right. with their management to combat weeds or broom sage or sagegrass because you know, they're just spreading it around and they're just, you know, cleaning up their pastures for the year. Right. Just another, just another kind of knock against mowing there. Exactly. I, I think there's a time for it. Probably the number one to me is uh, if the cattle don't get ahead of the grass and you've got a bazillion seed heads out there that are mature and they're sticking their head down through that to find grass, you know, that becomes a, a pink eye transmitter pretty quick. Yeah. Uh, and I think if you, don't want to spray maybe you've got clover and you've got some weeds but before we hit that time you just talked about landry you know long before they're mature and standing out there and all i'm doing is making it look pretty again let's go out there and knock those seed heads yeah. off before they make seed yeah, yeah. Uh, let's but, raise yeah. the mower up knock the tops off yeah. yep and yep. yeah don't bush hog it down to the ground we're not trying to create a golf course we're, we're right. farmers that's right that's we right we need grass and sometimes we don't <laughs> I mean, I, I know, I know this stuff because, and I'm not, I'm not knocking against anybody because I do the same kind of stuff myself, but sometimes we, um, we take options off the table just because we're like, well, this, these are the hay fields and this is the pasture, right? And we never think about, well, maybe if we haven't grazed this enough, maybe we just take a hay crop off, let it recover a little bit, and then maybe it goes back to becoming a pasture. 
No, we fire up the brush hog and we go out there and mow it down, you know? So, and like I said, I've done this kind of stuff and then looked back and like, well, there's a lot of hay bales sitting in those, uh, in those brush hog windrows out there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so again, just, just kind of having, just making sure we keep all the options open. You know, um, we know what they all are. Just make sure we keep them all open for every acre of grass we're trying to grow. Absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned something that, uh, we all ought to look at, you know, we've got hay fields and we've got pasture ground. A lot of us will pasture the hay after we've taken that cutting the hay, but mm -hmm. sometimes it can be of a lot of benefit to flip-flop those for a year. Yep. Not every piece of pasture can be hayed. Not every piece of hay ground can be pastured, but if you can flip-flop them a little bit, it does a lot for distribution of nutrients back yeah. onto the ground. Absolutely. And does a lot on weed distribution as well. So yeah. it can change that picture. For sure. Let's let's try to transition a little bit, kind of more down this this cultural um, management uh, road here of of preventing some of the weed escapes and and some of the weed issues that we see out there. Um, you know, I always like to say, and we and you say the same thing in in row crop production. You know, it's like sunlight, and if you have sunlight and you have bare ground, you're going to have weeds. Uh, and so the number one weed control thing that we usually shoot for in, in cropping systems is um, is crop canopy, right? So that's what we're looking. For. The principle is the same, I guess, in, in pasture. We're still looking for for crop canopy. So, um, Landry, what what's let's can you go a little bit into kind of what we see as the traditional way to manage cattle out there with with seems to be continuous grazing, right? That's what I was raised with. I don't know about Cameron, that's but what I've been raised yeah, with. yeah, like we had the cow pasture, right, and that's where the cows live. And when you're a kid, it makes sense. When you get older, you're like, wait a minute. Until the, <laughs> until the winter time. Yeah. And then they get moved to the hay ground that yes. you stockpiled. Yes. And you, yeah. 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 Um, so, <clears throat> so yeah, let's, well, Landry, why don't you just kind of jump into that a little bit and kind of talk a little bit about traditional continuous grazing and, and maybe we'll get into kind of how we can change that up a little bit. Yeah. So, yeah, you're exactly right, uh, Adam. You know, traditionally, um, most Cattle producers in the state are running a, some sort of a continuous graze system where essentially, you know, they uh, open a gate in the springtime after they're done feeding hay and, and essentially they don't, you know, open too many other gates to allow, I mean, those cattle have free roam of the whole farm until it's time to wean calves in the fall. Um, and, and, and that's, that's kind of it in a nutshell. Um, and that does a couple of things, um, especially going back to, to some weed issues is that cattle are, they're aggressive grazers in nature. Um, you know, they, they very rarely will take a bite here and walk 10 or 12 feet and take a bite there. And, you know, they usually stand in one spot and get all they can get before they have to take another, another step. And so what that ends up doing is it in a continuous gray system, if it's not overstocked, it essentially kind of creates a, a patchwork of different stages of growth that that vegetation is in and cattle like the new fresh regrowth. So about every three to five days, they're going to go back to where they had just been three or five days prior to that and eat that new fresh regrowth. And so you get, you get a lot of bare ground in areas and then you get a lot of mature vegetation in areas. Right. Um, and so that bare ground is, is what obviously kind of helps those weeds get a head start. Yeah. So, um, next, I kind of want you to go in and just, just introduce, um, a lot of people are probably familiar with kind of the term rotational grazing, but kind of introduce a little bit, kind of what that is as far as rotational grazing and then kind of how it helps to mitigate some of those issues that we were talking about there. Yep. 
So, so rotational grazing or management intensive grazing, um, there's, a, there's a lot of different terminologies that are out there that folks are using. Yeah. Essentially, the, the way I boil it down is in a continuously grazed system, the cattle are the ones that are making the decisions on when and where to graze the farm. In a rotationally grazed system or a management intensive grazing system, the producer is the one that's in charge of deciding when and where those cows graze. So the, the producers are kind of the ones that are they're making the decisions. And so with that, you know, you obviously need some infrastructure in place, and that's usually, you know, some sort of watering system, a little bit more fence. But you're going to you're going to rotate those animals throughout your pasture, depending on the size of the pastures, how many animals you have, the class of animals that you're raising. Um, there's some there's some factors that go into that. But essentially what you're wanting to do, the, the main thing is and it goes back to the the terminology of leave half, take half, leave half. I mean, that's, that's kind of what the whole rotational grade system is, is built around. Mm-hmm. And that goes back to residual heights. So when we, when we turn cattle into a paddock or into a pasture, we don't want them to remove more than half the vegetation that's currently out there in that pasture. Um, and it, that, that does a couple things. One, it, it leaves good residual heights. Hopefully your vegetation is tall when you're turning, you know, you're not turning them in at two inches and pulling right. them out at one inch. Obviously. Right, right, right. So you're leaving good residual heights. Um, so you're keeping that ground covered. Um, so it's keeping maybe weeds from popping up. Um, it's keeping the soil temperatures lower in the summertime. And, but the biggest thing that really that it's doing is that once animals remove about more than 50% of the growth, the above ground growth, that plant has to start digging into its root system to, to rebuild that plant growth above ground. So when, when those animals take more than 50%, we stop root growth in that plant and essentially that root starts to shrink mm-hmm. because it's relying on those stored ener- the stored energy in that root system to, to go, then go above ground. If we're only taking half or less than half, then what's above ground can essentially recover. It's not digging into its root system. Um, and so that, that in general, with the healthy root system, does a whole host of things um, from, you know, water filtration to uh, drought resistance to a whole host of things. So, yeah, for sure. No, that makes a lot of sense. And goes back to what we just talked about with raising the cutter bar and when we're haying, it's the same, same kind of principle. You're still taking a little over half, but, yeah. but again, just allowing that plant to recover a little bit faster. You mentioned some of the logistics of that, um, from water to fence to, to all that. I mean, do I need to spend $10 million on, on water and fence to, to make this work or what are, I guess, let me pitch that a little differently. Let's, uh, <laughs> cause Lord Just knows, a million Lord knows I don't have $10 million to spend, <laughs> um, but, uh, let's, let's pitch it a little differently. Give me, uh, Give me a homemade system where I have a, a couple pastures that I keep my cows on during the summer. What can I do to improve that system? And then let's say I do want to make some infrastructure uh, improvements on the farm. What's the best way to go as far as actually installing some permanent structure type stuff? So kind of give me the rich man, poor man, if you will, scenario. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll take a step backwards from that and, and kind of mention that in a, in a continuously grazed system, you're only getting about... The, the cattle are only consuming about 30% of the forage that's out there. They're utilizing about 30% of the forage that's out there. In a highly intense system with, say, 24 paddocks, mm-hmm. your your utilization rate more than doubles. You're, you're up to 50 to 60% utilization rate. I'm going to play devil's advocate for a second. So you're telling me that grass grazed down to one inch is only 30% utilized? 
How does that make sense? Well, I, so I should have prefaced it if you're properly stocked okay. <laughs> to begin with. If you're overstocked and your whole farm looks like a pool table, yeah, you, you're probably getting a little bit more utilization, but your animals are suffering right? Uh, because, you know, um, they're not – all they're getting is that, that top inch of growth. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and that's all they're doing 95% of the day is out feeding because they, they have no time to rest. And uh, So anyways, but in a in – a, properly stocked continuously gray system where you start feeding hay on a normal year in december yep. and not in august right um <laughs> you're only utilizing about 30 percent of the forage that's out there okay um and so that's one thing that rotationally gray system is increases utilization rate so if we can go from a continuously gray system where we're not cattle have free reign on the farm and even subdividing that into to two paddocks or even four paddocks we're going to increase our utilization rate. Okay. We're going to allow those plants to rest before we come back into that same field, into that same paddock again to graze them. Um, and that can be done pretty easily. Um, you know, if you've got, you know, say two fields on your farm, hopefully there's there's water in each one of those fields. You know, you can take a poly wire and split those two fields into four. You know, run a poly wire over the top of the pond yep. so that splits that the one field now into two and you've got four um or if you've got a way to you know move portable water i was i was up in northern missouri yesterday and one of the producers that's that's grazing um some some property up there has a very large portable tank that he fills and it gives him about a week's worth of water and that's that's his central location and, and essentially he divides that one field up into four kind of as in a in a wagon wheel type scenario Okay. Um, so he's using portable water. Yeah. Um, so that can be done pretty easily with sure. a big enough tank. Um, so that's that would be the easiest way to kind of get started. And, and I would recommend folks that aren't currently rotationally grazing to start small. Yeah. Um, it, it is management management intensive. And if if you're not used to that, um, it can be kind of overwhelming if you go from not moving any cattle to saying that I've got to move them every day. Yeah. That can be very overwhelming, and that's usually where the train wrecks happen in those sorts of scenarios. Sure, yeah. No, I think that's a great way to look at it. Just you know, I always um, tell people that yeah, two paddocks are better than one, and three is better than two, and four is better than three. But you don't need to go from one to forty-five. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> like the same absolutely. day. Yeah. So that's exactly right. One of my favorites for the guy that's got the hundred-acre pastures out there is to ask him, why don't we make this five twenty-acre pastures? Yeah. And we give each pasture gets grazed for a week. Mm -hmm. That gives every one of those paddocks a whole month to rest. Oh, mm -hmm. and what That's, a what a huge difference it makes for them! My goodness, and, yes. And they don't want to be management intensive grazers. And we have so many guys that work off the farm. Yes, they will tell you, I can't move cattle every day. So I ask them, can you move them once a week? Yep. If you can move them once a week on weekends, that changes yeah. the game for them. Well, and and most of them, hopefully, if they're they're good. Uh, good cattlemen you know they're they're visiting their animals at least once a week so oh, if yeah. you've got a good system in place it's a those and and what's what's nice about it is once those cattle start becoming accustomed to being rotated you know it ain't hard you can drop a gate i mean they're yeah. there waiting to be moved to the next paddock and oh they yeah make, and they yeah. even make heck they make systems now you can put it on gate latches on timers we don't even have to be there it'll yeah. drop the gate for you and them cattle will, will move into the next paddock so. yeah nice yeah um, man, I didn't even know that kind of stuff. Existed. I didn't either. I didn't either. Maybe I need to get. Maybe that, that might be a game changer for me. <laughs> I bet Landry's selling them. Yeah, I bet he is too. 
<laughs> so so on the Cadillac system, what if you see some guys like you've got the opportunity to um, maybe have a clean slate? We're we're building a new fence, building a new pasture, and you're like you know I want to I want to make this easy. So you know when I'm not home, my kids can go out there and move the cows for me or or something like that. What do you see most guys doing from a water and and fence logistics standpoint at that at that stage? Mm-hmm. Um, you know I think. <clears throat> Well, I, I will tell some folks, if you're going to build a system, make it as flexible as possible. Yeah. I think some people hamstring, especially if they're not used to it. And I did it when I first installed my first grazing system eight years ago on my farm. I'm now, t- I'm still changing it. And it's because I didn't leave it as flexible as I should have. Hmm. Um, so, so I would recommend try to make it as flexible as possible. I wouldn't uh, probably recommend splitting up your place into 24 permanent paddocks. I would leave, I would split... I would use poly wire or something temporary that you can move to then divide, you know, say eight permanent paddocks in, into 12 or 16 or, or six permanent paddocks into 12 or, or okay. 16. Um, just because for one, from year to year, you know, uh, the forage grows different. Um, we may, may not be able to add fertility to some parts of the farm due to increased fertilizer prices or, you know, whatever it might be. There's just so many variables that go into that. That if you've got flexibility built into those systems, you know, they're, the producer is going to be a lot happier with them in the future. Right. Um, and so, you know, you know a, a typical well-developed grazing system, um, a lot of people still use barbed wire to, mm-hmm. to subdivide their pastures. I'm, I'm a proponent of, and, and people will probably cuss me, I'm a proponent of electric high tensile. Um, that's just kind of the way I started. And so that I've got along well with it. You know, the older generation, older folks that are used to barbed wire, cuss electric fence. Yeah. Um, and each each have their pros and cons. But you know, the the your permanent paddocks are subdivided with electric fence or, or barbed wire. Um, you usually have um, permanent waters in most of those, but not all of them. I you know the system that I'm installing right now has some hydrants because I know I'm not going to be using them in the winter time. Okay. Um, so I'm just using above ground hydrants with with portable tanks. So, you're, area, just, so you're just taking a tank out, set underneath yep, that hydrant because it's got not f- counting on having to use it when it's zero outside. Yeah, it's got a float on it, and I won't have to worry about it. Now okay. I do have a couple permanent tanks or producers that think they're going to be wintering cattle in a certain spot or stockpiling okay. and strip grazing. You know, are going to want some some sort of watering system that's not going to freeze in the wintertime, obviously. And so those are need to be put into the equation as well. Yeah. Um, you know, and and so. The other, the other thing that I would tell folks is when you're setting up these paddocks, <clears throat> when livestock get over about 400 feet away from water, they start to gain that herd mentality. So they're going to go to the shade tree together. They're going to go to the water tank together. They're all going to go out and feed in the same area together. Once we get less than that 400 foot away from a watering source, they start to kind of disperse and do their own things as we get better manure distribution, things of that nature. So I would for folks that are kind of thinking about installing systems, you know, maybe look at making your paddocks not more than 400, 600 feet away from uh, a watering source. You know, maybe that okay. make, make that your permanent paddock and then you can always subdivide that down smaller. Okay. That's interesting. Hmm. Huh. Cool. Very cool. So from a grass species uh, scenario, uh, what does, um, for instance, on your, on your farm, Landry, when you're looking at, at grazing animals, obviously as much as the year as we want, as we possibly can with $7 corn and hay that's never cheap. Mm-hmm. Um, are you, do you have fescue in every one of your paddocks or, or kind of what do you typically do 
in that scenario? Yep. So I I I like to have a warm season forage, and and I'm a proponent of native warm season grasses, but have a warm season forage of some sort on a producer's property on on my farm. Um, and it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, but it helps offset some of the, the negative effects of, of fescue in the summertime. Um, but so I get cows off when the fescue is the hottest yep. onto something that's non-toxic. Okay. Um, they're grazing that warm season forage through the summer months. And that does one thing. It allows me to get them off that fescue, but it also allows me to stockpile grass um, into, the, into the winter months, into the fall months. And so on, on most of my farms, um, <clears throat> I will stockpile fescue and it depends from year to year. Last year wasn't a great year for stockpiling fescue. Probably got half of what we normally would get in the fall. We just didn't have the rainfall. Gotcha. Um, so that's the only, if, if there's a negative to stockpiling fescue, it's the unknown of how much forage am I going to, if I fertilize in August, late August, how much forage am I going to have come October? Accumulate to, by to, the to, end. Yep. So, um, so it's always good to have some reserves and, of hay and, around for that. Um, I'm not a huge proponent of, of grazing 365 days of the year, um, but there are people that do it and do it successfully. I, right. I, I just may, need, may not be to that level quite yet to, to, to do that. But um, yeah, so so I, I'm a big proponent of stockpile and fescue. That's, to me, that's one of the biggest positives that that forage has okay. is the ability to stockpile in the wintertime. Right. Most people know what you're talking about, but can you kind of just define uh, stockpiling? Yep. So, so fescue has a has a waxy coating on its leaf that essentially allows it to preserve its nutrients um, in the leaf throughout the winter time, depending on weather um, and the environment. But that what that usually looks like is um, typically adding some some nutrients and fertilizer to that fall. Well, let me take a step back. That, that grass needs to be clipped off, mowed, hayed, grazed, some way to set it back, typically in August, early August sometime, okay. to that two to three to four inch range. Essentially what you're, what you're shooting for is to have fresh regrowth okay. come fall time to graze. Um, and that usually requires some fertility, um, you know, in that 50 to 60 units of nitrogen per acre to really try to gain as much as we can out of that fall growth. Most of the fescue is going to produce about about two thirds of its growth in the springtime and about a third or so of it, give or take, in the fall. So we're trying to capture that fall growth as, in, as much as possible. Um, I will throw out that, you know, telling folks to, to fertilize their pastures in late August can be kind of daunting um, with the loss of nitrogen potentially that could occur with volatilization and things like that. So using a, using a source of nitrogen that's protected from some of those losses will help with that. Okay. Um, but anyways, then essentially after we apply that fertilizer, it sits there dormant or sits there untouched until we're ready to graze it. We're just accumulating growth. Um, and we can, we can start grazing it, you know, in October, November, or we can start grazing it in February and March. And for the most part, depending on the weather, this does a little better in Southern Missouri than it does in Northern Missouri because Southern Missouri doesn't get the, the snow, the snow pack, the snow load. Right. Um, but it, barring any, you know, huge weather events in the wintertime, that fescue will essentially keep good nutritional quality throughout the wintertime. I had some that I tested and I think it was January. I started grazing my stockpile in January. I fed hay from October, to about December okay. and, and then started grazing. Okay. Because I had poor quality hay 
I, okay. I bought some poor quality hay. Yeah. Um, and knowing that my my stockpile fescue was better than my hay, I wanted really. Those, I wanted those spring calving cows to have the best nutrition those yeah. first few months leading up to them calving or the last few months of gestation. Uh, so, anyways, but and that that fescue it tested about nine percent protein in in January, um, which was better than my hay. Sure. So yeah. Um, that's that's just interesting. It's just like not I was again. Say it's backwards. Backwards from what you normally think. Yep. And sometimes it tests even higher than that. Sometimes it'll test way better than your than your your fescue hay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah in early winter, I mean, I've seen I've seen fescue stockpiled fescue that you know they were turned into in November and December be 13 percent protein, upper fifties TDM. I yeah. mean, better than any hay that. That we well better any than any hay that we could cut and harvest in right. a timely fashion in, in springtime. Yeah, hmm. yeah. You just mentioned something that needs to be brought up about the warm season grasses that you discussed, and that uh, how hard it is to put up fescue and orchard grass in a timely fashion, because we're trying to do that all throughout the month of May to get the best quality out of it. And this month was just like so many others, where it just rained and rained and rained and rained and Virtually zero hay got put up during May. Uh, switch to native warm season grasses, and if we're going to mow those for hay, that's done in late June. Yep, yep. Essentially yeah. coming, you know, right now up yep. until, you know, probably mid-July would be the window to, to mm -hmm. harvest those. When and it's always hot dry. Yeah, and it's prime time. <laughs> yeah. And here we are in a time yeah. that's, you know, historically is a great time to be out cutting hay. Mm -hmm. And I'd sure rather be cutting hay at its prime than behind the eight ball like I am at home right now with fescue that's not been cut yet yeah, yeah. and it's not going to be very good quality when I do get around to cutting. Every year, David, it seems like the same thing. Everybody's like, oh, you know, I usually get this up and anymore. I want to be like, do you? You know, <laughs> really? Like, <laughs> like, I need to know what you do. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> it just, I mean, we all, we're always looking for that normal year and it just doesn't seem to exist anymore. I, I think we just need to adjust our thinking thought process to, it's like, well, this is, this is what I'm actually able to do every year. And the rest of that is maybe it was normal in the seventies. I, I don't know. Maybe it wasn't even then, but it, uh, it just doesn't seem to happen where we can put it up timely. Anymore. Well, yeah, we, we sometimes very rarely will we get a dry spring. Yeah. We always have a dry summer. I yeah. mean, I, very rarely do we have oh. a summer. Very rarely yeah. do we have a summer that's not dry enough that you can't put up hay in, exactly in, in, right. in July. Yeah. But April to May, more times than not, it's it's yeah. it's too wet. Yeah. And but, if we do have a wet summer, you'll not hear me complain. No, right. I, no, <laughs> yeah, for, sure. <laughs> for sure. And, I mean, why do you think the balers that are able to wet wrap, you know, and all that kind of stuff are, are so popular now? It's yeah. Yeah, because, because putting up dry hay – when it's high quality is, is almost impossible. Yeah. The tether and the bell wrapper are th two things that, uh, when they first came out, I would have thought, you know, this is, this is craziness. Yeah. But uh, the, the longer I live, the more I see that normal yeah. is that you can't hardly do without those things. <laughs> yep. Yep. And once again, I wasn't the guy that invented them. So no, me here either. I am. <laughs> <laughs> what other, uh, Kind of circling back to, to some of the rotational grazing stuff, and I think just just our side conversation there of, of how outside the box it can allow you to be um, is is probably the number one thing. But what other benefits kind of are, are like that, that that you've seen from from folks who maybe is, have installed one and, and came back three years later and it's like, oh, this, this part's probably the greatest thing about my system that I put on my farm. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I think 
a couple things. One would be the, the increased utilization um, and, and having more of a uniform, depending on how intense they are, having a more uniform grazing pattern, you know, that they don't have to worry as much about the seed heads. Uh, they don't have to worry as much about the weed pressures. Um, so that's part of it. The other part of it, I will say that more times than not, producers are able to increase, if they weren't overstocked to begin with, they're able to increase their carrying capacity. They're able to, because they're increasing that utilization rate. Okay. They're going from 30% utilization rate to 70% utilization rate. So they're essentially, there's more forage out there. Those plants are more healthier. And so they're producing more tonnage. Um, more times than not, that is the case. Now, that's not always the case. And don't sure. Take that to say that if I install a grazing system, I can double my herd. But more times than not, that's that's the case. Yeah. You may have a little hay to sell or something like that. Yeah. You know, it, right. it keeps you flexible, I guess, yeah. in those. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You hit the nail on the head when you said there there's an increase in tonnage of forage produced. And the cool part is it's, you know, our business is to convert those tons of forage into pounds of beef. And that that's the residual effect that the guy will talk about eventually is, mm -hmm. uh, you know, gosh, three or four years in, I began to notice how many more pounds of beef I was marketing every year. That's and that's. That's what we're at after. Good problem to have. Yeah. Help him optimize that. Yeah. Yep. You know, I don't know if we like fully talked about, you know, we talked about the utilization and, you know, using about 50%, but, you know, and this all obviously depends on your paddock size and your stocking rate and stuff. But let's kind of talk about how, how much should you let them graze that grass down before you transition, you know, to your next paddock or, you know, for weed control purposes and regrowth and all that kind of go through that piece of it. Mm -hmm. So it, yeah, it kind of goes back to the take half, leave half. I mean, for the most part, and that's not always, that's not always a solid, you know, obviously if I've got 20 inches or 25 inches of vegetation, so we, like in a warm season grass setting or something like that, you know, I'm probably going to take that down a little bit more or in the winter time, if I'm stockpiling forage, I'm, I'm, I'm going to probably grub that right. down a little tighter because I'm not worried about that regrowth. Um, so that's part of it. You know, I think um, I think that magic is, is in that four inches, right, right around that four inches of not going any lower than that. It kind of goes back to what David mentioned. We start getting into maybe some, some toxic fescue issues. Um, there's not a lot in really a lot of nutrition in that, that lower. I mean, majority of it's in that four inches and above is where the, the highly qual high quality forage is. Um, and that also, you know, with that four inches, it allows us to cover, allows the plant to cover the soil. So yep. we're getting a host of things, protection that way. Um, so I, I guess if I was to answer, it would be that four inch. Yeah. Um, it's kind of that, especially on cool seasons. On warm seasons, it's probably gonna be a little higher than that, just because the way they grow and their their root crown and things like that, growing points a little bit higher on that plant in warm season, so you don't want to take them down short. But um, for cool seasons, it would be that four inch. So about, really, it's about the point when people wanna mow their yard because when they walk in, it's at their ankles. You yep. know, Cause some people don't like the grass that tall, they like to cut it shorter, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. But. And some of that probably depends on kind of what you're turning into next. Maybe, you know, maybe um, when the, when you've got grass everywhere, you probably need to be rolling through those maybe faster. And, yeah. um, and later on in the year when you, you yeah. know, maybe that next paddock's not quite ready yet, then you probably um, hold them in there a little longer. Yeah. I, I, and that's exactly right. It, a lot of that depends on the time of the year and the growth cycle that that plants in, you know, in the springtime, as we talked about, it's very difficult to get across 
you know, to, to grow yep. all, graze all your acres before that grass gets mature. So you either need to increase your stocking rate somehow with the calves that you've got weaned or you're, you're purchasing some animals or whatever it might be, or you need to really kind of just flash graze everything and try to get as much as get the ice cream out of that as much as you can mm-hmm. um, before that vegetation starts to slow down. And then once we get into the summer months, you're going to probably, ex- so in a typical situation in the springtime, I'm probably moving through my paddocks every few days, you know, okay. I'm, I'm just moving through. So I'm coming back. So like I, I, where I live, I've got, I think eight permanent paddocks. I'll be back to that first paddock in probably 15 days. You know, I'm, I, there's not a lot of rest. Typically the, the sweet spots in that 20 to 40 days rest period for those plants. Um, but then come summertime, I'm, I'm extending that rest period as much as possible to allow those, those plants as much time to grow. Cause they're not growing as fast. I can't without damaging the plants and damaging the roots, I can't come back into that same system as quick. Right. Right. Yeah. I wouldn't say that it's cut and dry and you could say four days here, four days there, four days there. It's kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's management, it's pasture management grazing. I mean, there's a reason why it's called, you know, intensively managed grazing. You have to actually manage it and be out there and take a look and say, okay, maybe, you know, it's four days here this time, you know, it's five days, you know, like you said, we get to the summer months, you know, maybe it's extending now to seven, eight, 10 days. Yeah. And and a lot of it, you know, not only from a growth cycle of the forage, but also the class of livestock that you're running. Right. You know, if I'm trying, if I've got dry cows, they don't need a lot of nutritional quality. I'm not really too concerned if that forage gets mature for the most part, you know, but if I'm say I'm running a stalker operation or I've got calves that I'm weaned out, weaning out, or I've got wet cows that need that higher nutritional quality. I may be moving them through a little bit quicker so that they're getting the best they can get out of, out of, you know, what's there. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Guys. Um, what did we not cover that we should have on, uh, on just kind of overall managing a grazing system to, uh, kind of, eliminate some of the need for weed control. Uh, certainly we're never going to probably get rid of all of it, but, uh, being the best cultural managers, managers we possibly can of our pastures and, and kind of weed management stuff in general and in most grazing systems across the state. You know, one thing that we didn't manage and while we're still kind of on the rotational grazing thing is that the importance of the root structure that's below ground and it's the direct correlation to what's above ground. Sure. Um, but what a lot of people I think miss on the, the, the benefits of what is below ground and the root mass that's below ground is the ability to infiltrate water, the water absorbed and held on to that plant. If we don't have that root system, that that plant is unable to um, absorb that water. And, and as we're now in middle of June going into the summer months, that is the most important thing that producers can do is be able to capture that water that falls. And in an overgrazed system, you know, you can lose up to 75% of that water is essentially being run off to your neighbor. Um, so in a typical, you know, one inch rain, we're on, that, that producer is only capturing about three tenths of that inch rain, of that inch rain yeah. and the rest of it's running off. Where if you're in a rotationally grazed, leaving good residual heights, you're, you're capturing about 80% of that water that's falling. Um, and so anyways, I, that was one thing to me that a lot of people don't think about, especially as we go into the dry months, is just the ability to hold on and capture that water for those plants to grow. Yeah, yeah to, to draw a picture of it, you know, basically if you're in a rotationally grazed system where that grass has an opportunity to rest, that root mass will expand about three times the size of the root mass in the in the typically overgrazed, continuously grazed pasture. 
that's huge. As you said, that's just huge. Yeah. Just because like, you know, like we were talking about with new normal stuff anymore, it seems like it's, it's either raining four inches and you don't, you know, or it's, uh, or it hasn't rained in four months. Yeah. One the, it's one of the two. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm awful afraid we're fixing a switch there. I know. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like we're yeah we've we've clutched and we're we're ready to shift gears. I feel like um, in that scenario right now, that's exactly right. And you start looking back on that last rain and wishing you'd have soaked up more of it. Yeah. Absolutely. Amen. So, guys, thank you so much for taking the time to to record this and. I, I know folks will find it helpful that because I certainly have and um, we'll we'll certainly have you both back on here. Definitely want to talk a little bit more about the warm season grass and annual crops and, and how to graze and put those in a system, too. And yeah. uh, I think that's a separate episode. So um, thank you both for, yeah, for taking you. the time to be on. Appreciate it. Yeah, so, thanks, thanks for having us. us. Yeah. Appreciate it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And uh, we'll talk at you next episode. Thanks for listening to Made for Agriculture. Email comments and questions to podcast at mfa-inc.com.